Well, good morning. I want to welcome you here this morning and those that are joining us live stream. What a delightful moment. I can breathe. <laughs> you know, it's really difficult to sing with a mask on. How many actually relate to that? It's really hard. And uh, so it's just great to have this moment of freedom. And I, I want to just read a little bit from Psalm 34 this morning. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Isn't that great? You and I do not have to live in fear. Why? Because we are walking, trusting in the name of the Most High God. We're going we're gonna to stand this morning as we go to the Lord in prayer. I believe God wants to do uh, supernatural work. We've been praying this morning. Uh, we're going to look at a very fascinating text of Scripture from 1 Peter chapter 3. Actually, uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, who, by the way, was a doctor in theology, translated the entire Bible. How many think that's a feat? Hebrew and Greek from Old Testament and New Testament. And he said about the text we're going to look at today, I have no idea what this verse means. What a challenging text to be studying this week. But we, and what he was talking about is very specifically what does it mean. There's a lot of ideas, but there, I think there's a general idea. We're going to get it really fast. There's some profound things that we're going to hear this morning. So Lord, I thank you that you are the Lord of the universe and all things are in your hands. And as we hear this morning, the fact that you submitted unto death for us now creates an ability to have access into the presence of the Most High God. We are now standing before you, Father, with absolute confidence. We come with deep confidence that you hear our cry and whatever the needs are in our lives, whatever the fears are, whatever the anxieties are, whatever the challenges are, whatever the sorrows may be, whatever the things that are before our paths, we have a deep confidence that you will see us through times of trial and suffering and sorrow and difficulty because you are so loving and so kind. Lord, I pray today that you'd open the eyes of our understanding. I pray as we hear your word that we would fall in love with you all over again. And for those that may not know you, I pray as they hear the amazing work that you'd accomplished on our behalf, may they be drawn to you, Jesus, like never before. May we have a deepening love for you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. You know, in life there's a lot of pressure. And a lot of people feel that pressure. And I wanna just, uh, I need my little uh, advancer there, Patty. Wouldn't mind bringing it here, thank you. <laughs> and so often we feel that, this pressure, and many times we're perplexed. How many were kind of perplexed when you know COVID came along and we all thought, oh, this is gonna last how long? And over a year later, we finally came through it. But, you know, there was a sense, we all knew it, that eventually life would return back to some level of normalcy. How do you know that, Pastor? Because there have been these kind of things in the past, and life returned back to some level of normalcy, and we recognize that. Well, the Apostle Paul certainly knew what it was like to be knocked down. 
But what I love is he was never knocked out, you know. And I don't know if you know this, but I was kind of thinking about this message. I was thinking about some of the great boxing matches where, you know, people were knocked down, but they weren't knocked out. And they got back up and they actually won the mat, the, the bout. And, and I really believe that in life, you and I, many times as Christians, we will be knocked down, but we don't have to be knocked out. We can get back up and we can begin to grow and develop in a powerful way. The Apostle Paul certainly experienced many challenges in his life, many painful moments. He actually suffered much to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. How many are thankful for people who were prepared to give their lives and suffer so that you and I could enjoy the benefits of their hardship and difficulty. Are you, I appreciate what they went through. I appreciate the missionaries who came to difficult places and preached the gospel and, and there was hostility against them and they withstood the hostility and the gospel prevailed and people gave their lives to Christ and, and they didn't shrink back. Many times they felt discouraged. Many times they felt knocked down, but they weren't knocked out. As a matter of fact, Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he says, we are hard-pressed on every side. Maybe you're here today. Maybe that's your emotional state. You're going, I'm hard-pressed on every side. Maybe you're financially pressed, or maybe there's a physical malady or a relational tension. You're hard-pressed on every side, but you don't need to be crushed. He said, we were perplexed. Isn't this amazing? The apostle Paul, the brilliant theologian at times, was perplexed what God was doing in his life. Have you ever been perplexed and going, what is God doing in my life right now? Have you ever wondered? Have you ever questioned? Have you ever said, God, what is going on? I don't get it. He was perplexed and said, but he was not in despair. Why? Because he knew that he was serving a good God. He knew that he was serving a loving God. He knew that all things work together for good to those who are called by his name. He goes on to say, we were persecuted. Persecution. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say right now, there is a growing hostility and has always been a hostility towards Christianity. It's gone on all through the ages. And if you begin to propagate the gospel message, you begin to say that Jesus is the way, believe me, there is a spiritual force. I'm not talking about human beings. I'm talking about a spiritual force that is opposed to the name of Jesus. But he said, but we were not abandoned. We were struck down, but we were not destroyed. In other words, knocked down, but not out. Scott McKnight says, perhaps we've been worn down by the seeming lack of justice in our world, worn down into living into apathy about justice, especially final justice. You know, people do wear down when things don't turn out a certain way. People despair. People kind of give up. People just think, well, the whole thing isn't worth it. You know, he goes on to say, justice in our world seems haphazard, even chaotic, and it seems extremely slow in its realization. And I'm sure that that's true for anyone who's experienced you know, measures of injustice in their life where it just didn't seem fair. It seemed like the bad people were getting away with stuff. Isn't that true? And I think it frustrates people when they see that. So when events uh, point out the inconsistencies of justice in our world, we begin to believe that maybe justice doesn't exist. And yet as we're about to discover what may be true in our earthly life, when evaluated in light of eternity, justice and vindication will come. One of the characteristics of God that we tend to shy away from is his justice. You know, we don't talk about God's judgment. 
You know, I was just reading, you know, John the Baptist, he said, flee from the wrath of God. I was listening to a lecture by R.C. Sproul when he talked about what is it that we're saved from, and he, he said, we're free from the wrath of God. I, I don't even think we talk about that. And yet when we read the book of Revelation, aren't we kind of seeing the wrath of God, and it's poured out against all of humanity's injustices? I want to declare to you that you may feel like, you know, life isn't fair, but I'll tell you, ultimately, it will all be straightened out because God is going to judge every human being based on the deeds done in their body. The Apostle Paul tells us that if we endure or suffer with Christ, we shall also reign with him. We're going to see that in Peter today. Peter has been teaching us in in his letter here that despite suffering and hardship and persecution, we have someone who's already traveled this path before us. Jesus is not only our guide, but he's the one who's made the journey possible. And that's the thing we need to understand. A number of weeks ago, I talked about the Christian life wasn't the Caribbean cruise. It was actually ascending Mount Everest. It's not easy. And that we actually have a Sherpa guy. We actually have someone who's gone before us. Somebody who's walked over the, the most dangerous places of the journey. Jesus has gone before us. And as we follow in his pattern, in his, in his footsteps, in the paradigm that Jesus walked in, that you and I will be safe and we'll be able to ascend that mountain called life. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22, we have three main ideas that will encourage us in this journey of life that's filled with injustice. I think we're hearing a lot about injustice today. I think that's probably the, the key note that's being played right now. Don't you hear it? So how do we handle it? How do we handle suffering? And how do we handle persecution? Because you and I are followers of Jesus Christ and the spirit of the age is hostile to the Christian message. Anybody figured that out yet? Let me give you these three ideas. The first idea to encourage us in times of suffering is that suffering can be... A, can be a path that brings us to the Father. Will we trust God in our difficulties? Or will there be reasons we want to give up and quit and wander from the faith? You know, every test brings out the best and the worst. It can even do that in ourselves. It can bring out junk in our lives that we didn't even know existed. But it can also, you know, be an element that shows if we have genuine faith or not. You know, a lot of times it's easy to say, I serve God when things are going good. But what happens when it's not going good? Suffering is one vehicle or means that can bring us to God. Not that our suffering saves us or has any merit in that sense. It doesn't. Rather, as Peter earlier has pointed out in his letter, suffering refines us so that our faith is strengthened as we look to God for help like we never did before. How many recognize your prayer life generally goes to another level when you're going through a time of difficulty? Anybody kind of notice that? Put a little pressure, you'll see what's coming out, right? Peter had recorded earlier in chapter 1 and verse 6, he said, In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result into the praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So what is he saying? He's saying that times of trial and suffering reveal what is within our hearts. They prove the genuineness of our faith. That's why James says, count it all joy when you have all these problems. Why? Because trial shows you what is within your heart. And if you're trusting God, that's a good sign. That's a powerful thing. Real faith grows stronger in trial and difficulties. 
Mere professions of faith melt away in times of crisis, pain, persecution, and suffering. So trials and sufferings test our faith. We also see that Jesus' suffering was of incredible value. Not, not so much to him, but for our sake. Jesus was willing to suffer death, knowing that the Father would raise him up again, vindicating him and bringing the ultimate victory over death, the devil, and all the evil effects of sin in our world. Jesus knew what the ultimate outcome would be for those who would surrender their lives to him. This vindication is transacted through the work of God, the Holy Spirit, raising Jesus from the dead. You know, it's not enough that, you know, Jesus just died on the cross. A lot of people died on a cross. The fact that Jesus rose again from the dead, that, that, that's, that's part of what creates our salvation. It's not just his death, it's his resurrection. It go to, it's one saving event. This is the very means by which we can come to the Father. In the previous verses, as we're about to look at chapter 3 and verses 18 to 22, in the previous verses, Peter had been speaking of suffering unjustly or wrongly and now uses Christ as a supreme example. So Jesus now is the one who brings about the means in which you and I are reconciled to God. You see, every human being is estranged from God. Every human being is alienated from God. Every human being is separated from God. We're not connected to him. Actually, the Bible reveals that you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. There was no relationship to God. Matter of fact, most people struggle with even the idea of God. A lot of people in our intellectual, materialistic, rationalistic, scientific realm think that God doesn't even exist. They, they're, they're living their own lives. They're, they're, they're trying to figure this out in a humanistic sort of manner. They've elevated humanity and knocked God off his throne, and so we're worshiping what human beings can accomplish. That's our, that's our religion, humanism. Here Peter uh, explains something profound. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. The idea that's being communicated here is that Jesus suffered, or as some translations say, died for our sins. And yet, the word suffer for our sins is actually the literal word that needed to be translated there. But Thomas Schreiner argues that the word suffered is the right word that's being used because Peter uses that word suffer in his epistle 11 times. It's the key, one of his key themes. Peter was thinking of the death of Christ here, but the term suffer establishes a connection with his readers because they're suffering. He goes on to say, um, the distinctiveness of Christ's sacrifice is featured here. For even though believers suffer, you and I never suffer for the sins of other people. Like we can suffer the effects of sin, but we're not suffering on their behalf. Nor does their suffering constitute a sacrifice for the sins of others. Here Peter is telling us that Jesus, who was without skin, sin, described as righteous, is offered in place of those who have sin, the unrighteous. Jesus' sacrifice is both efficacious, meaning 
It is successful in producing what is needed. Jesus' sacrifice is everything you and I need to help us have access to the Father. You and I need to understand it is substitutionary. In other words, it's supplying all of our deficiencies. You and I could never get to God. There was no pathway to him. There was no road there. There was no access to God. As a matter of fact, when you study the Old Testament, the great lesson you learn is the inaccessibility of a holy God before unholy humanity. As a matter of fact, only one man once a year could actually stand in the presence of Almighty God and that not without the the shedding of blood of animals that he would have to, you know, have a sacrifice not only for the sin of the nation of Israel but also for his own sin as a high priest. But Jesus, once and for all at the end of the age, because he was sinless, he was the perfect sacrifice and he went into the presence of Almighty God once and for all. There's no need for continuous sacrificing. We are actually all under the judgment and condemnation because of our sin. We don't think about it that way. You know, in our culture today, we're trying to analyze and figure out why we have all these difficulties. And yet, a lot of it is because as humanity, we're rifled with sin. We're riff with it. It's, it's affecting every part of our being. It affects how we relate to each other. It affects our emotional well-being. It affects so much of our lives. It affects our physiology. It affects, uh, uh, you know, just the way we relate to creation. It's affecting every aspect of our life. And yet, we've moved away from the concept of sin entirely. We've discarded it. We don't see it as a problem. We can't identify. We don't understand what the root cause of all of our issues are. And yet, the scriptures talk very plainly. It's that we're alienated from our creator. We're alienated from this relationship with Almighty God. And there's no access back to him. And yet, Peter's now saying there is a way. And it's through what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Schreibner reminds us the reason Christ's death is sufficient is precisely because he was sinless. He could not have died on behalf of his people if he himself were stained by sin. His perfect obedience, therefore, is the basis for the sufficiency of his death. Jesus died to bring us to God. Or another way of saying it is that Jesus created the access or the means or the agency into the very place of God. Jesus, when he died on the cross, it's so profound, folks. The temple, which represented Israel's relationship with God at that very moment that Jesus gave up the ghost, the Bible says that the curtain that was barriering humanity from God was torn from the top to the bottom, providing a visual of our ability to have access into the very presence of God. As a matter of fact, the writer to Hebrews is arguing with the Hebrew people who had now become followers of Christ and were tempted to go back into Judaism. He's arguing throughout that letter. It's actually a sermon. He says this about Jesus. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... He says, by a new and a living way, open to us through the curtain that is his body. There's a new access. There's a new way into God's presence. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, he says, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. 
What's he saying? He's saying this is the way to be cleaned. This is the way to be transformed. This is the way into the presence of the living God. This is, this is reuniting us in the very purposes and design of God. God created you and I to have a relationship with him. We were designed. We have a purpose. Our meaning will never be fully realized. Our purposes will never be fully actualized until we're in connection with the one who created us. And once we come into his presence, to know that our sins have been forgiven, our conscience has been cleansed, to know that there's a freedom in our soul. It's, there, there's so many powerful elements that we see here. No wonder Peter and John tell the Jewish rulers, he, they said to them, salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind which we must be saved. There's no other access point to God. You can't earn your way in. You, can't, you know, a lot of people think, well, there's all these different religions with all these different access points to God. And the answer is no, there's not. And I'll tell you why. Something unique about the person of Jesus Christ. You say, what's unique about him? He's God. He's God. He's the one that made the reconciliation with humanity possible. Human beings couldn't come up with it. All the religion in the world is man's endeavor to somehow merit favor with God. But God says, no matter how much good you've done, you still have, you're still tainted with sin. So God himself left heaven and came to earth and made a perfect provision so that humanity could be reconciled to God. Jesus himself said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, he said, except through me. Isn't that beautiful? He says, I'm the access. I'm the door. I'm the avenue. I'm the, I'm the person that gets you to meet the Father. Listen, I'm the only one that has a relationship. I'm the only one that really knows him. I came down from heaven. I'm going to introduce you to him. But I think it's even more profound than that because God himself became a human being. And when he said to Philip, he said, have I not been so long with you and do you not? Because they said, show me the Father and I'll be satisfied. He said, haven't I been here so long that you don't know? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Wow. When you look at Jesus, what you're looking at is God. It's powerful. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul argues that only through Christ's sacrifice can we gain the righteousness necessary to be in a holy God's presence. He says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained, if a right relationship could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If you and I think we can be saved any other way, what we're nullifying is God's great provision for our sin. You're trying to come another way, and there is no other way. The second idea that encourages us in, is, in suffering can be a declaration of victory over all spiritual powers. When we suffer for what is right and entrust ourselves to God, great power and good comes from that. Earlier in this letter, Peter has been communicating that when we follow the path of Jesus to bless rather than curse others, and some of you were here probably last week or you heard it online when I talked at length about that. When you and I learn to bless and to forgive rather than to seek revenge, when we entrust ourselves to God, God can work powerfully both in our lives and those who have abused us. Once again, Jesus is our paradigm or pattern and how we ought to live. 
How many know that what seemed like defeat on Good Friday was actually the avenue to Easter Sunday? Jesus' death was actually leading to his resurrection. It was the greatest comeback story of all time. He was knocked down, but not knocked out, right? And as a matter of fact, the more I read the scriptures, I notice this. That's probably one of the great paradoxes is how God transforms evil and causes victories to be snatched from defeats. The story of God's people is one where they're knocked down but not out. The gospel is actually the great reversal. How many know the way down is the way up? Jesus willing to lay down his rights and life was the very means that God the Father utilized in defeating evil. God raised Jesus the Son and exalted him above all others. Paul says of Jesus' attitude, listen to what he says in Philippians, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, if you just unpack that for a moment, it says that Jesus' name is the name that every knee should bow here. But we're going to see in the book of Romans, it says every knee shall bow when we stand before him on judgment day. As a matter of fact, Every knee should bow. Every tongue confess what? That Jesus Christ is what? Is Lord. What does it mean to be Lord? We're not just talking about Lord in the sense that he's over us in some capacity. Actually, that word there is the Lord. It's God. We're declaring that Jesus Christ is God. We're acknowledging this to the glory of God the Father. The resurrection from the dead is a vindication and a validation of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. Notice it states that at his name, every knee should, here in Philippians, but as I said in Romans 14, 11, shall. The Apostle Paul explains the resurrection is a declaration of Jesus' identity as God. And in fact, Romans chapter one, verse four, in Paul's writing, he says, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection. In other words, the resurrection from the dead is the validation that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you missed it, I'll help you out a little bit. Because Jesus himself said this to uh, his own generation. He said, they asked for a sign, remember that. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And what did Jesus say? He said this to them. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three night, days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What, what's Jesus saying? I'll tell you who I am. I'm going to die and come back to life again. Now, maybe you and I read this, and it's just a little too metaphorical for us. We go, oh, Jonah, the fish story, I don't know about all that. Well, let me tell you, the people in his generation totally got the message, especially these religious leaders. Matter of fact, they came to Pilate after Jesus was crucified, and they said, 
The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they went to Pilate and they said to him, listen, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So they caught the message. So he gave the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. In other words, that's why they posted a guard. That's why they sealed the tomb, because Jesus had told them, he said, I'm going to tell you who I am, and I'm going to tell you how you know that I really am who I am. I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to know that's a pretty good thing. Anybody here can walk around. I mean, if you can tell me I'm so-and-so, I'll say, yeah, but if you can rise from the dead, I'll buy it, you know? and these guys, you know, they were, they'd heard what he said. So Peter now summarizes the thought of Jesus' death and resurrection as the means to bring us to God. You know, I kind of labored this point. Why am I doing that? Because I think sometimes we get a little fuzzy on this stuff. We, we, we got to realize something. There's only one way to God. And the price has been paid. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, it not only vindicates him and validates him, but it creates an access so you and I have uh, an opportunity to be united with the Father. So, it says here, the resurrection is actually the work of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. We've looked at that. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Now here the NIV translates that Jesus was made alive by the Spirit. Now some could argue and say, well, no, literally the little uh, word by should be in, in the Spirit. You could make a whole argument. You know, when you start doing that, you can start thinking differently. But I think the NIV translates it correctly here. You say, why is that? Well, Howard Marshall says the second verb similarly cannot refer to someone reviving or coming to life again through their own power, but is passive and refers to being brought to life by an outside agency. That's why, we, that's why they're interpreting it by. As a matter of fact, this can only designate God's bringing of Jesus back to life. This fits with the witness of the New Testament. No writer like Paul or John ever says that Jesus raised himself from the dead, but that God raised him. And how did God do that? The point, well, through the Holy Spirit. And so the point is that the ultimate authority over death and life of Jesus here does not lie with people, doesn't lie with humanity. We now enter probably more difficulties in understanding specifically what Peter's about to say here in verses 19 on. He says, and being made alive... He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Okay? And being made alive. So now people are arguing that maybe this is chronological. Did Jesus do something between his death and resurrection? Some people would argue yes. And those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. So here's a bunch of questions. Who are the imprisoned spirits? Here we see he went and made proclamation. Where did he go? Martin Luther, who I earlier alluded to, trans, who translated the entire Bible into the common language of his day, said, a wonderful text is this and a more obscure passage, perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. Now, I got to, you know, if somebody of that caliber says, I can't tell you for sure exactly what this verse means. That probably 
takes a few of us out as well, right? You know, and as a matter of fact, this is so funny. You know, I have a lot of commentaries, and I'm reading, and one of them says, don't even bother trying to explain this to people. They'll be so confused. I, literally, that, that's what he writes, because it's a difficult passage. I like what David Helm says. He says, yeah, we may not understand the, the nuancing and the specific elements of these texts, but he says something that I think is good. He says, our text has a definite movement and flow of thought. It starts with Christ's suffering, but it ends with his ascension, as we're going to see. He says, um, it opens with his willful submission to unrighteous rulers. This is interesting, I think. But by the time it closes, a complete reversal has taken place. The submissive son is that by the end, the ruling king seated at the right hand of God with all of these evil spirits, powers, and authorities submitted to him. Now, I, I think this is profound. It, it struck me so powerfully this week. Here's Jesus submitting to the rulers and authority, the governing officials, who are actually inspired, instigated, and motivated by evil spirits. So, you know, Christians could say, why would I want to listen to these guys? They're evil. But Jesus submitted to them. But in his submission, God reverses the whole process and when Jesus now ascends into heaven, even the evil spirits that had instigated his death are now in submission to Christ's rule, reign, and authority. How I many think that's an amazing thing? That's stunning to me. Wow. Let's take a brief visit to a few viewpoints. I, I, I just want you to hear a couple, so I'll give you four of them. Thomas Schreiner outlines them. He says, first, Augustine and since him, any others, and many others, understood the text to refer to Christ preaching through Noah to those who live while Noah was building the ark. According to this view, Christ was not personally present, but spoke by means of the Holy Spirit through Noah. That's one idea, what these verses mean, okay? I'm not going to try to tell you which one I think. I'm just pointing out four views, right? Some have understood Peter's referring to the Old Testament saints who died and were liberated by Christ between his death and resurrection. Okay, so some of you probably heard that idea. I've heard, I've heard all these ideas. Okay, that's another idea. Here's a third one. Some believe that Christ entered hell after his death and before his resurrection to preach the gospel to sinful human beings in Noah's generation, offering the opportunity to repent. In other words, this gives them a second opportunity. Now, I... Personally, I have a little problem with that because uh, it kind of flies in the face of some other biblical text that says just as people are to die once and after that to face judgment because the people who believe this viewpoint believe everyone's going to have another chance after they die. Now, we'd all like to believe that, but I don't think Scripture bears that out throughout the New Testament. So when you take a very obscure text to make a point, you're probably going to be wrong. That's... We'll leave it at that. Another major position is that these are fallen angels that Christ is preaching to. That word proclaim there is actually the word preaching, the, and a lot of them think it's preaching the gospel, but the NIV is just saying proclaim. It's the idea that he's making a proclamation. And we do know that regardless of the position, the reality is that Jesus' death and resurrection was a proclamation. How many know that's true? 
And ultimately, evil spirits pick up on something that happened at the cross because Paul writes to the Colossians, he says this, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. I like that. Not just some of them, all of them. And he said, and oh, I skipped a verse here, but I'll read it. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So everything that you and I ever thought could, did, past, present, future, God took all of those sins when Jesus went to the cross and they are on the cross with Jesus. So that's where all of your sins are. How many kind of like that? Your sins have been addressed. So when you're walking around going, yeah, I can't forgive myself, uh, the only person that's playing that game is you and the devil. Because your sins, as far as God's concerned, has been done away with. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed your inequity. So we have to believe that. And the moment you have faith in that and you trust that, it will set you free. Because literally, that's exactly what happens. In a sense, when we hold sin against ourselves, we're saying that Christ's work wasn't really that powerful. How's that? In a sense, it, it's a statement of, I just don't really believe that what he did was enough for me. I'm trying to get you to see something and understand something. But let me move to this last verse. And he says, and having disarmed the powers, something happened when Jesus died and rose again from the dead. He disarmed the powers, the authorities, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, let me give you an imagery. This is in the Roman Empire. Every time a Roman general went out and won victories and conquered lands, you know what he would do? He would bring back all of the goods from the conquered places and all of the captives he would bring back to Rome and they would have a little parade. And he would literally ride in on his chariot with all of the goods from that country following behind him and all of the people in chains all brought in captive. And all the people in Rome go, yay. And I want you to know that's the picture you're being painted here for you. So I want you to think of it this way. When Jesus rose again from the dead, he is the great conqueror who's gone into the heavens and he's dragging behind him all of the captives who had been taken captive by the enemy, they are now belonging to him. And not only that, the powers of darkness are now chained by the power of God. That's why they're in submission to him. They didn't do that willingly. They didn't have a choice. The final idea is that suffering can lead to ultimate vindication and triumph. Throughout the Bible, we see powerful moments of reversal and vindication of those who were oppressed and in despair. How many know that's true? People who suffered were later exalted by God. Think of the many biblical characters who suffered and were later vindicated. Joseph, remember, he suffered. He, he was envied and he was sold into slavery by his brothers. The Bible says in the Psalms they even put chains around his neck and shackled his feet. You know, we read that story, you know, we, we, we fast forward 13 years where, where Joseph's being exalted to become the prime minister, right? I want you to know it wasn't a fun time for Joseph to be in captivity. There was nothing fun about that. He was in slavery. He was oppressed. But yet we see this amazing reversal. His sufferings 
And then eventually his exaltation. Then I think of Hannah. Let's pick on Hannah. She's married to Elkanah. She can't have any children. He has another wife. She's having children. She's taunting this barren woman. And in the Hebrew mindset, that was a great plight. I mean, because they didn't have the developed understanding of the afterlife as we did. And so they believed that their legacy was through their children. And she had none. And so she was in anguish. She was praying at the, at, at the tabernacle and crying out to God, and God heard her prayer. And what happened? God answered her prayer, and she gave her firstborn to God, who happened to be Samuel. And then later she had five other children. God vindicated her. There was a reversal. And you read her prayer afterwards of praise of what God had done for her. And literally it's the same. It's, there's so many components in her prayer that Mary, the mother of Jesus, took as well. You have lifted up the lowly. You've heard our cry. You have, you've, li- you've raised up the lowly and you've brought the mighty down. Isn't those are powerful words? That's the whole message of the gospel. It's a message of reversal. Or think of David. This young boy, you know, the eighth son of Jesse. And Samuel comes along and says to Jesse, hey, one of your boys is going to become the future king of Israel. And so what does Jesse do? He lines up the first seven and forgets all about David. David's tending sheep way back in the back 40. And, you know, you can almost get a sense that David's not even registering in Jesse's mind. And what happens? You know, the Spirit of God speaks to Samuel and says, None of these are the king. And so Samuel says to Jesse, oh, by the way, do you have another son? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, David. Oh, right. And they drag David, and immediately, you know, the Spirit of God comes on Samuel, pours oil on him, and anoints him the king. And, and then this, this little guy, you know, rises up and defeats a giant. And then later on, he faces an even greater giant in Saul's envy, and he's pursued and persecuted through the wilderness. And that goes on for 13 years. How many get a sense? You know, we read these stories and we just move from one segue to the next, but there's all that suffering that went on in David's life. Before he reigned as king, he suffered for years and years and years, living with the hope of the future being different than what his present was. And that's true in our lives. And God has always chosen the weak and foolish things of this world to confuse the wise of the world, the noble and the strong. What we ultimately end up in our text today is that this Jesus who submitted to those in authority over him and were inspired by evil spirits in having him crucified, God reverses that injustice as we read Peter's concluding remarks. The same spiritual powers are now in subjection to Jesus. I love that. And he uses the illustration of Noah and his generation to encourage his readers who feel overwhelmed by the majority of people who are hostile to the gospel message and are persecuting them. He's not writing to a bunch of people who have no problems. These people are undergoing severe hostility and, and uh, persecution. And it reminds me, see, I, maybe I've had the privilege of traveling, and I, I was thinking when I was in Germany meeting these Iranians, and now they're giving their lives to Jesus. And how many know there's tremendous persecution in Iran? It's amazing. These people are suffering, and they're fleeing, and then they become believers. And you know what they said to me? Pastor, we want to go back to Iran and bring the gospel to our families. Isn't that amazing? And, you know, our, 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 the person that we, we serve, I'm not going to tell you his name because I know this is being streamed, but he says to them before, after they give their life to Christ, he says, before you get baptized, he says, here's what you need to know. I will only baptize you if you're willing to die for Jesus. 
And if you're willing to say, Jesus is Lord and I'm willing to die for you, then I'll baptize you. And many of them are coming forward and being baptized. And that's why they're willing to go back into a place of hostility, which may be the end of their life, to bring the good news of Jesus. How many think that these guys get it? They get it. Or the young men and women that I'm training in India and I'm speaking to them in seminary, you know, they're not figuring out, you know, what kind of a salary and what kind of perks am I going to get when I get out of seminary or college? These people know that they're going to be persecuted for their faith. And, you know, and one day when I was teaching, because I've been there, you know, 12 times, and I was teaching one day, and the Holy Spirit prompted this in my soul and said, some of these young people will suffer for my name and some will even die. And within a year, one of them had been martyred. You know, that's reality, folks, in many parts of our world. I think we've got to awaken, move the cobwebs from our minds for a minute. Peter says, and this water uh, symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body. He had to say that because, you know, God doesn't wash your sins away with water but the pledge of a good conscience towards God, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, this is what saves you, is what Christ has done for us, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to whom? To Christ. The very element, the floodwaters that brought about the deliverance of Noah and his family, which God decreed as righteous, was the very element that brought judgment on those who refused to repent. Isn't that interesting? God used the same element. He brought water. One, it brought salvation. The other, it brought judgment. And he's bringing that idea across to us. And I like what Wayne Gruden points out, the parallel between the situation of Noah and the situation of uh, Peter's readers is clear at many points. And I would even add, it's also true of us. And let me just give you some. Noah and his family were a minority surrounded by hostile unbelievers. Do you realize we're a minority? Anybody figured that out yet? Anybody know that? We are a minority. Get used to it. You know, and there's hostility. Noah was righteous in the midst of a wicked world. Do you know how hard it is? I want to just speak to... Some of you, maybe you're struggling with temptation. Do you know it's easy to succumb to temptation? Anybody can give in. It takes courage and takes moral fortitude and endurance to say no to the wrong thing. And you know, young people struggle with that, but even older people struggle with that. I want to challenge you. You know what? You need to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You need to resist like Joseph did of old. Noah witnessed boldly to those around him. You know, I was listening to somebody the other day saying he probably had a few of those guys helping him build the boat, probably hired a few contractors, you know. And, and here's the means of salvation, guys. And they're going, right, you know. And a lot of times people are around us and we're talking to them and showing them a better way and they're going, right, you know. But let me tell you something. The day's coming when that vehicle of safety will depart from them. And that's tragic, you know, Noah realized that judgment was soon to come upon the world. Oh, yeah, it took 100 years. That doesn't sound like soon, Pastor. Yeah, well, it doesn't seem like soon because we've been 2,000 years. But can I make a declaration to you this morning that Jesus is coming back? And when Jesus comes back, he's going to judge the world. 
He's going to judge the world, folks. And in that moment, that door of grace will close. That ark of safety will be shut. There won't be more, any more opportunity. Why is God not coming sooner? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is long-suffering. God is patience. God is loving. He cares about people. But there will come a time when he said, enough's enough. There's enough injustice rising up to me. And when I read the Bible, I see it over and over again. Sodom and Gomorrah, the cry kept growing and growing, and finally God came down and dealt with it. And then we think of the days of Noah. There was judgment coming. God said they'd been, none of their thoughts, it says they were continuously evil. There was an inclination towards evil. Things were getting darker and darker. And finally God said, enough. And yet he was still patient and allowed Noah 100 years to build a boat. That was the vehicle of salvation for he and his family. But for the most part, people rejected it. It's in the unseen spiritual realm, Christ was preaching through Noah to unbelievers around him. And I want to remind you that when you and I speak to people, the word of the Lord, actually it's the spirit of Christ speaking through us. Number six, at the time of Noah, God was patiently awaiting repentance from unbelievers before he brought judgment. And folks, that's exactly what's happening right now. You know what? There is judgment coming. You know? There is judgment coming. We don't ever talk about that, but it's true. And if Jesus were to come tonight, a lot of people would perish, and it would be sad. Do you think people were ready? You know, I was reading about that fire in Lytton, B.C. Do you know people were overcome by how fast the flames came? I mean, you know, those sparks were jumping two, three kilometers ahead and sprouting out, and before they knew it, they had warning, but they never even, some of them didn't even make it out of there. They perished in the process. Isn't that sad? You know what? Sometimes we think, well, I got all the time in the world. You may not have any time. You don't know the day or the hour, Jesus said. Noah was finally saved of the few others, and I mean a few, eight in all. Peter thus encourages his reader that though perhaps few, they too will finally be saved. Believers have no need to fear. Suffering, that suffering is the last word. For they share the same destiny as their Lord whose suffering has secured victory over hostile powers. Thomas Schreiner goes on to say, believers are, are then akin to Noah. They're like Noah. They are a small and battled minority in a hostile world, but they can be sure that just like Noah, their future is secure when the judgment comes. We can be encouraged. Though suffering now, we will reign with Christ forever and ever and ever. I could keep going on. And ever. Don't you love that? It's a path that Jesus walked and we also walk at times on the same path. It's not destined to destroy us. It's designed to reveal stuff in us. You know, we've just gone through 16 months of COVID. I think we should take a hard look and say, how did I respond over the last 16 months? Where was my soul? Where was my faith? How did I behave? Did I lose it? Did I blew my cool? Did I get upset? Did I become obnoxious? Did I become angry? Did I become frustrated? Did I become rebellious? Those are all things showing you what's in your soul. You see, God allows those trials and tests to take the dross out of our lives. It's also to reveal where our hearts are really at. You know, James says it counted pure joy when you run into these things. Were you just, were you rejoicing? Were you delighting? Were you full of gratitude? 
You know, think about it. We live in such an amazing country. We had so many amazing support systems in this country. You know, I was so thankful for people in our church that were sending monies to Africa, sending monies to India. Those people were really suffering. You know, they were going through it uh, at a higher level. They don't have the support systems we have. They don't have the infrastructures we have. They don't have the financial support we have. They don't have the access to food that we have. They didn't have any of those things. And many of them have perished. You know, some have perished here, but many of them in other countries have even more so perished. As we stand in this hour, and as we stand in an hour of suffering, we're making a declaration. We are making a declaration to principalities and powers. You know, there's a battle going on. Think of the book of Job. What was going on there? Job was making a declaration, and the evil forces were looking at this man who was undergoing great suffering. And what did he say? Though he slay me, yet will I what? I'm going to trust him. Where else can we go, Peter says? Only you have the words to eternal life. So I'm going to have a stand as we close the service this morning. You know, John tells us this is the victory that overcomes the world. What is the victory? Even our faith. Folks, are we trusting in Christ? You know what? Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. It's not enough to say, I believe in God. No, you need to believe in Christ. You have to put your trust into the work of Christ on the cross, that he died for my sin and your sin. He rose again on the third day. He's seated right now in a position of absolute authority. He's the one that's going to judge us. But you know what? We can deal with judgment right now if we come to him and say, Lord, I surrender to you right now. I submit to you. I want to confess you as my Lord and as my Savior. If you've never done that, I'm entreating you. I'm begging of you. You know, I want you to think of this. You know, this, this sounds like old-fashioned gospel preaching. Well, let me tell you, it is. It's the Bible. It's what the, the book, good book tells us. And we either believe it or we don't. We either adhere to it or we don't. You know, there's a lot of things you can talk about. A lot of ideas are floating around out there. But let me just tell you something. There's nothing like the core, basic element that what you just heard today. Jesus is the way the truth and the life. You can't come to God the Father except for through Him. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you need to do that today. What will happen then is He will remove your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. That's a powerful statement. He will take care of your sin issue. He will set you free. It's powerful. So with every head bowed this morning, I want to give you an opportunity. I'm not going to assume anything. Is there anyone here this morning say, you know, Pastor, I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior today. Never done this before, but I want to do it today. If that's you, just raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. Just raise your hand and say, that's what I want to do. Anyone here? Okay, it's good. Hopefully we've all done that. But maybe you're struggling today. You're struggling with your faith. You're struggling with 
challenges, you're struggling with discouragement, you're, maybe you're in despair, maybe you feel knocked down, I want to encourage you today. We serve a God of the great reversal. You may be knocked down, but I want to just declare to you today, you're not going to be knocked out. You're going to come back. And I've shared many illustrations. Jesus, David, Joseph, Hannah. We could keep going down the list, right? Over and over again, we see it. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you feel that. Maybe you feel a little bit of despair today. I want to pray with you. Is that you today? Maybe you're a bit discouraged. Just raise your hand. I want to pray with you today. Father, we just come before you today. I know that you are working and speaking and making yourself real to each and every one of us. I pray, Father, that you would deepen our faith. I pray that our confidence in you would increase. I pray, Father, that we would not live in despair, that we would not succumb to doubt, that we would not yield to temptation, that we would be strong in you and in your mighty power, that we would, we would embrace you, Lord, even though we may be uh, misunderstood. Maybe there's persecution happening in our lives. Maybe there are people around us that are speaking words of despair and, and hostility towards us. Father, help us to be strong in this hour and in the days to come, Lord, because we know that you will validate our lives. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave today.